Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited today to be rejoined by Dr. Steve Jordans out of the University of Toronto, Scarborough. He's a psychology professor, delivers massive courses awesomely, and he also predicted the great snapback that we're living in on a show a couple years back. Steve, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you. Always great to be with you, Michael. And we're not alone, which is also delightful. We are joined today by Lalani Thangavadivalu. Lalani, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much, Michael. It's nice to see you. And you're here in part because you're working with Steve on this project. You're technically still a student at the University of Toronto Scarborough, but you will soon be graduating. And some of the work you've been doing really leading into your graduation has been building on work that you and Steve have done together. We always start by getting someone's origin story, however you want to tell it, but we'd love to just get our audience familiar with who you are and what you're doing these days. Yeah, for sure. So I am currently a student at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I was a student in Professor Jordan's class in 2019. So this is pre-COVID, fall semester. And I had the opportunity to be in his introduction to psychology class. And I worked in, I would say, in one of the preliminary stages of this project where I had the opportunity to create a public service announcement. At the time, my work was focused on drunk driving. I vividly remember making a voice podcast. So maybe that was like a lead to this one. Um, yeah, yeah. But then uh, and recently I had the opportunity to work with Professor Jordans on this experiential learning activity. And that kind of led me to here today with you. Yeah. And it's culminating in the two, you started to publish some research about the work that you've been doing. And Steve, you've always been trying to figure out how to debunk the myth that when classes get big, they start to be terrible. And instead you tend to put forth that they could actually be pretty amazing. And what Lalani just described sounds very high touch, very small group intensive. But in fact, this is something you're doing at scale. Can you describe what the project is, the way the courses work, and some of the work that you're doing here? Sure. I'll give a little bit of the stage setting context, I guess. And yeah, I'm afflicted with this weird mix of things. So one is I love teaching large classes. I love the whole vibe of teaching to a big group of people, the interaction of it. If I remember correctly, it's a little rock and roll, Steve. You've been known to enjoy a little bit of the rock and roll action. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is for me, it's similar. Like when my band's out, you like that crowd reaction. And for me, teaching to a class feels like that. And that's great. And a lot of people think, you know, that's the most you can expect for a big class, I think, is to have an uh, engaged professor who's really trying to lecture well. But the other side of me really believes that we need to develop skills in our students. And I believe that skills only develop through repetition, structured repetition. We have students only for four years. Yeah. So I think we need to bring this into even our very large first year classes. And that's really what the project was about, a, a sort of a process that's evolved over a number of years for trying to bring experiential learning and teamwork and peer assessment and all of the things that build the student's skills of collaboration, communication, critical thinking, creative thinking, you know, trying to exercise those skills and finding a way to do it in my 1800 student class. There it is. There's the number. That's a big class. But then the way in which you address the scale is a lot of what you were describing. It's a combination of experiential learning in that they're embedded in real world projects with real organizations. We'll talk a little bit about that next. And then they're also evaluated 
in more peer-to-peer context. You've also worked a lot on technology that allows for good peer-to-peer and kind of allows for that scaling. Can you describe how that piece of this works? Yeah. So, I mean, the technology we use a lot is something that we created in our lab. It's called Peer Scholar. And it's really about trying to give students at the highest levels, giving students experience, giving constructive feedback to their peers, which is itself a very complex task. And we really guide them through how to do that well. That involves critical thought, communication skills, all these things. And also then on the other side, they receive peer feedback and they are allowed to use that to improve their work. And so that's another whole set of skills, how to have that sort of growth mindset that we talk about. But I firmly believe the growth mindset must be learned. It's not something people just have. It's a skill. And so this is meant to give them that sort of practice as well. But the tool is very flexible and it can be bent around a little bit. And so in the project that we're talking about, we didn't necessarily use that whole process, but we used enough of it so that we could do experiential learning with one partner even though we had 450 groups of four students. And so the peer assessment kind of allows that magic to happen. And as the husband of someone who was just grading a lot of papers, there is something to be said for peer assessment, at least helping us get out of some of, between peer assessment and artificial intelligence, I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel for the travails of professors like yourself. Thank you for your service, grading papers. But then- That's the professor's perspective. Lilani, you've had two perspectives, I guess. One was really the first time you were experiencing what Steve was designing, and then more recently coming at it again as part of a senior project. What has that experience been like? What have you noticed? What have you learned along the way? Oh, boy, there's a lot. (laughs) I mean, when I think back to being a student taking part in the project, I remember initially thinking, well, I'm getting to see what other people are producing. Because oftentimes when you submit a project as a student, you do your own work and then you just give it in and you're not sure what the other work is like. So having the opportunity to see how other students are doing, you get some ideas from them. You also get to give your feedback, things that you like, and they're able to implement it into their work. Now, when I had the opportunity to look at it from a researcher perspective, there is a lot of feedback that the students have shared. It's amazing to see how much they benefit from having the opportunity to share their own feedback, but also receive it and implement it into their own work. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely been a wonderful experience. It strikes me very much around how engaging in equal footing around feedback in Mm -hmm. that, like I'm evaluating other people's stuff and they're also evaluating my stuff changes the dynamics a lot. I think it starts to create more of a group Mm -hmm. us against bad work rather than Mm -hmm. me against you. And then, you know, I imagine that's Partly the design, it sounds like you're kind of trying to bring in different dimensions of working, either working together in their group or then working together in their feedback group. You start to really develop the collaborative and communication skills that are kind of what you're talking about, Steve. So so you'd be a great scientist, Michael, because as it actually turns out, we didn't intentionally create Peer Scholar with that in mind, but another professor who used it had exactly that same thought. He said, I use it in my large class. It doesn't have to be a large class. That's where we use it. And he said, I feel like it enhances what we call community. And there's in fact, the scale called community of inquiry that asks 
how connected do students feel to the professor, to the material they're learning, and to their fellow peers? And that last mm -hmm. one is called social presence. And so we did a full out study, randomized group design, and you're absolutely right. The social presence was higher when Peer Scholar was used. And so having students sort of pro-socially helping each other seems to enhance that bond that they feel and can take a big class and make it feel a little bit warmer. Yeah. And then the related choice that was made here, which I think is worth talking about, is the partner that you found. The story that swabbed the world was certainly something that I think can connect in interesting ways. Maybe starting with you, Lalani, and then Steve, weigh in however you think makes sense. Can you describe who Swab the World is and how that related to the project this go around? Yeah, so it's an external organization based from Quebec. And the founder of Swab the World, she was in need of stem cell donors because she had cancer previously. And her goal was to find and create a more ethnic, more multicultural donor base. And with the students, they have the opportunity to work with Swab the World to create public service announcements, either relating to a specific group that they're interested in, or they want to make it for a specific person who's in need of stem cell donations. Yeah. And that choice, Steve, seems really clever on multiple fronts and also a good cause, you know, clever in service of a good cause. But it does seem like it starts to build in more intrinsic the old saw, I don't know if it's an old saw, the idea that's out there nowadays is that the rising generations are more mission-driven and want to connect to a cause. I, I think that may be true for really all of us these days, but at least in that context, it does seem like the work is ultimately in service of a good cause, and that, I imagine, builds some motivation and connection and trust as well. Yeah. Always with these assignments, the first trick is trying to find that external partner. And I actually like to usually change it year by year, because in fact, this is the capstone experience of the course and it ends up sort of defining the course. Like Lilani said, her course was about, you know, drinking and driving kind of thing. We had one that was all about homeless in Toronto and helping them. We had one about immigrants, supporting immigrant communities as they come in. But yeah, this one, when I heard about this one, <laughs> it was special for a couple of reasons. And first of all, the people they're trying to reach are the students in the class. They're looking to reach 18 to 35 year old students of ethnic backgrounds. And that is our class to a T. So I knew there would be, you know, that connection that they would understand the challenge and that they would feel like, hey, it's actually my communities yeah. that have the unfair advantage here and I want to do something. So there's and, your and, mission. Yeah. And Steve, yeah. just to clarify, in case our listeners don't know the actual context for Swab the World, like around sure. leukemia. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Let me give that sense. So for some cancers, and leukemia is one prime example, really the only opportunity to reach remission is through some form of stem cell donation. And the Canadian stem cell database that we have here is a great database, but it's over 70% Caucasian in origin. And it turns out race matters in terms of finding a match. And so less than 20% of the world is Caucasian. So that means, you know, 80% plus of the world is just represented by a small part of the database. And so my dong, the head of Swab the World, and she will work with other people, reach out to her. She's a fantastic person doing great work. But, you know, from her perspective, this was an opportunity to speak directly to our students about this cause and to, you know, try to encourage them to make a difference and really showing them directly that, hey, if every additional stem cell that gets added to this database can literally save someone's life. Mm -hmm. uh, so it sounds a little, you know, highfalutin a little bit, but this is a project where we can say to students, the work you do in this classroom could save someone's life. You might yeah. not know it. But it could. And that brings sort of authentic learning to a whole other level. And just as you said, the goal of all of this is to have them 
go through the deep learning process in a much more intrinsically motivated way. You know, we'll talk about some of the grades. There was only like three grades associated with this whole assignment. And most of that's participation based. And so it was really counting on them just feeling the mission and wanting to do their best work. And it seems from the research as well described, they're into it. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And I will say, as someone who's doing a lot of media like this for a living, the fact that you chose some public service announcements and allowed the team to engage in the co-creation of a media output, I think is also spot on if you are thinking about the future of work and the types of the four C. Is it four C's? You know, I've heard four Four, so how six, many, how many C's? It's a lot of C's. It's transversal, transferable, twenty-first century. Yeah, they go by so many. Collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, and communication. Those are those I've heard a lot. So at yeah. least those they all sound like they're in service of a cause here, and you're working together. Lalani, having watched this from two different perspectives now, what's it like? having to work together on those public service announcements? So the year that I got to do it, it was individual based. I see. But at the time, I think it gave me the opportunity to reflect on myself. So just a little thing about me. I'm a lefty and oftentimes people tell me, you must be really good with drawing. I have two left feet with drawing. (laughs) I realized really quickly that I'm not the best artistic person, but while working on the assignment, I realized that, hey, I may be better at creating something that's more like audio based. Mm-hmm. And I vividly remember creating minds based off of Paul Walker, Princess Diana. And I asked like listeners, like, what's the commonality between them? And I was like, they all died in driving accidents. Right. So it gives you the opportunity when you're working on assessments like this. And I imagine even a bigger opportunity now. But back then, you have the opportunity to realize what your skills are. What are you good at? What are things that you need to work on? Being a student who worked on this assignment, I realized all these things that I'm capable of doing and things that I sort of need to work on. And it also reveals to you that what you're working on can actually have an impact. So feeling like what you're creating is actually going to, it's going to do something beyond giving you a good grade. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something that I think as a student, I'll cherish. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do find just a pro tip for drawing is you can use your hands. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to just use your feet when drawing. I tried. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But hey, I'm a podcaster. I I believe in the power of audio. I'm with you. But then when you add the group dynamic, which is what Mm -hmm. y'all did this, this more recent Mm -hmm. round, what do you observe there? How do the dynamics change and any perspective or insights? You know, Steve, you're always talking about developing skills. It does seem like you get pushed into areas that are more like what you're going to get hired to do in the future when you have to work collaboratively. I mean, that's 100%. So one of the things I say is, you know, when we give that syllabus in the first class, we're kind of communicating to students what it is we value in university, the sort of learning we want them to pick up. And if it's memorization, that that scares me a little bit. But if we can be right at the first year, the first class saying, start thinking about what your life is going to be like after university. Mm -hmm. What are the skills that are going to make you successful? And we're going to start working on those now. I think communicating that early on, and that's why I'm so eager to bring these things into big first year courses. And you're right, the teamwork, that was a more recent, just as Lalani suggested early on, it was more individual work. And I thought, can we do teams in a freshman class? And we're talking about 450 teams 
of yeah. four. And they work as a consulting group as though they're like an advertising agency. So they learn about Swab. There's a bunch of interactions. Maya actually came into the class and, and spoke. And then their task is to come up with a, a sort of campaign to kind of raise awareness amongst their community. So yeah, that's the kind of thing they'll do post-graduation and learning how to do that is critical. Now, I do want to add one other thing, you know, so many people I think say about how teamwork is so great. And then a bunch of other profs say, yeah, I don't know. Students hate it. And they generally do, but they generally do because profs generally just throw them in and leave them there. And so they struggle not knowing the challenges, not knowing strategies and things. And so we've created some micro learning. If anybody wants to see it, it's at videos.peerscholar.com. Check the teamwork button. And we have a video that tells them, here's why teamwork can be so valuable to you. Then we have one that says, here's why it's so challenging. Here's where things go off the rails. Yeah. And then we have one that says, here's what you can be doing right at the beginning to make sure it doesn't go off the rails. Right. So part of our research project this time was to say, okay, now that we've done that, now that we've given them the support, do they still hate teamwork? <laughs> is there still revolt? Or is this something they're now embracing more? And that's a very Vygotskyan notion, by the way, for those who are into the history of education, just providing the scaffolding and the support that students need to feel competent, to feel yeah. like they can do what they need to do. Get some desirable difficulty built in there, Steve. So there's enough resistance. And I think anytime you get four people together, believe me, <laughs> there's going to be a little bit of resistance. But then you do learn how to work as a group. And what's nice about it, although it is interesting to contrast that with the solo project, it is mm -hmm. nice to have a portfolio of work. You know, So the idea that you're yes. building something that you can point to and say, I made that, we made that. And then there's also, on top of that, an element of competition, gamification around trying to ultimately, you know, eyes on the prize, you know, be at the top of the pile of 450. What was that experience like? Or what was it like watching that? You know, you were describing it really in, in two perspectives, Lilani. One was the fact that you actually built something the first go around. And now having done research on a large cohort who were all working together to produce outputs, thoughts on how that makes an impact? Yeah, I mean, when looking at the students who've worked on group PSA, I definitely do see that there's more creativity. I can imagine that now that you're in a group, you have people who have different skills and Certain people are better at maybe coming up with the idea. Certain people may be better at producing the idea, making it creatively aesthetic and all those factors. So a lot of times you see very high quality pieces of work that I'm like, wow, you guys are an undergrad making these things. Like, this is amazing. But I agree with the notion that when you come to a bigger setting and you have 450 teams, like it's a big thing. And I've worked with smaller groups. I'm a facilitated FSG leader, so that's facilitated study groups leader. And I've tried to implement secretly certain aspects of that where students have to work in groups, they have to do peer assessment, they have to provide feedback on the answers that, let's say, another peer makes. And you can see how it sort of helps them produce work that they're all proud of and they're all able to make something meaningful out of it. And now seeing that come on a larger scale in the first year psychology course, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, it, it's cool to also see how people can then share it out, like sharing work that you did in a first year psychology class to other people. Yeah, that's pretty cool because you don't always do that. There is this sort of church and it's state not... dy dynamic where like that's that was for an academic project. I'm not going to share mm -hmm. that with my friends, you know. 
So, so some of the data, by the way, that was kind of interesting is we did ask questions like, did you talk to your family about this project? Mm-hmm. We find very high rates of them talking to family, talking to friends, and we encourage them to share. So there is a process. We go from those 450 teams who, I mean, just very quickly to give you a sense, they peer assess each other's work using a rubric that's very clear about the characteristics of a good PSA. By the way, they were very unconstrained other than that. They could do anything they want. It could be somebody had, by the way, a very clever example was an ad to put on the back of a bus written in a very specific community's language so that most people wouldn't even understand what the ad was. Mm -hmm. But people in the community who's who they were trying to reach would be like, wow, that's written to us. Interesting. Uh, And that was their sort of pitch at it. And I thought, you know, I just want to unleash. We tell the students, you know, these communities better than we do. You know what 18 to 35 year olds watch, how they get information. Whatever you think is effective, do it. And if you're proud of it, share it. Because the whole goal of this is to enhance awareness around what Swab the World is doing. And, you know, everybody reached, whether you make the top 10, which we can talk about or not, if you're proud of your work, you should feel proud to share it. Uh, And so we try to encourage that activism and that sort of empowerment. Yeah. And I'm a lifelong sports fan, more of an enthusiast than an athlete these days. But, uh, you know, the competitive aspect, I was also, you know, a competitive trivia player in my day. So I do understand why, you know, the gamification makes a lot of sense. I'd love to hear a little more about that, Steve, and then also how you're connecting this back to the intro psychology course, just to put a cherry on top. But yeah, the gamification, I I was intrigued. You know, it almost felt like it could be reality television. Yeah, in in a sense. So imagine, first of all, each team throughout the course, they're learning about how human attention works, what draws the mind somewhere. They're learned about how memory works, what makes some message stick. They're learned about persuasion, how to persuade people to, towards some position. And so they are encouraged all through the course. You know, this is always sort of an umbrella issue that we know this activity is waiting at the end of the course. So think about how these fit, how to use mm. them. Mm-hmm. And so they use all those to create the PSAs. Then they do the peer assessment. And the way it works, the math kind of works out in an interesting way where every group is actually assessed by 24 individual students. Okay. And so we have this rich score. We can now calculate averages Mm -hmm. and we can find the top 10. Yeah. Uh, And so those top 10 get identified. They get announced. There's already a prize to making the top 10, which is I will write a reference letter for these people because I assume to do work of that quality. There's things I can say about their creativity and communication skills, et cetera. But then the top 10 go into the next round of judging. And this is where we bring Swab the World back. We had at least four members from the Swab the World organization and about two or three from University of Toronto, including the chair of our department, which was kind of cool. And they uh, assess those final 10, again, by applying a rubric, also giving feedback, rich feedback to everybody. And then we find the top three. And those top three now live on the Swab the World site. If you go to the Swab World site, you can see those three that that won. And they get a big kick out of that as well. So, you know, that's the sort of prizes to the extent it is. But I think there's a lot of bragging rights. And those letters of recommendation, by the way, is is something I'll mention to professors. If you can give one out in a valid way, Mm. you know, you feel comfortable that, yes, this student has demonstrated something. They want to get into labs. They want part-time jobs. They want whatever. And that letter of reference is a real tangible and ethical, you know, prize to give them that in my mind is better than a grade. Yeah. Yeah. And Steve, maybe put you a little more on the spot here. You know, everyone hasn't been able to do what you've been able to do. So how are you able to do it? What advice might you have for other people who are interested in doing similar types of things? It does sound like 
your relationship with the university and the community is giving you the room to maybe move the needle. But I'd love to maybe take a step outside and try to, for our listeners, if folks out there are trying to do similar things, trying to make a difference, do you have any suggestions, ideas, advice? I think one of the things I learned really early on in my career as a professor is humility is a powerfully attractive force. <laughs> if you're in front of a bunch of students and things go wrong, or you know, for whatever reason you're floundering, if you're trying and you accept that and express that and don't try to hide it, don't try to pretend you're you know what you're not. If you say, "Wow, I had good intentions of doing this," and the wheels blew off, that happened to me a number of times early in my in the course, and I found that students like that. They didn't say, oh, you're a failure. They're like, oh, you're trying stuff. And it's kind of fun doing this with you. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, I've seemed to have gotten a little bit of that reputation. I tell people, maybe I'm innovative, maybe I'm creative, but I think my best skill is damage control. (laughs) I just, I'm willing to jump in, see what happens. And if things go wrong, then we figure it out together with a class. And and so very openly, we say, this was the intentionality behind it. This is what went wrong. How should we proceed from here? And I I think that's part of the fun of every course is dealing with the little hiccups that come. And so there's that entrepreneurial mindset of failing fast and failing forward. I really do see modeling failure in front of students as a really powerful, good thing to do. And they should see us trying. They should see us failing. They should see how we react to failure and how we kind of emerge from that, hopefully better. And I think this need to be the sort of perfect, pristine, everything goes cleanly in my class. I lost that, I think, about 20 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, apparently to good effect. I wind up quoting Nelson Mandela a lot. I never lose. I either win or learn. So in the case that something blows up, you're like, oh, okay. That's something to go back to. That was interesting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And now we get to tweak and you have to do something different next time. And then Lilani on both sides of this now, first as a student and then maybe seeing the development over time. What does it feel like to be involved in that type of a learning experience. It does seem like it's a little different than maybe the traditional sage on a stage kind of lecture dynamic. What did it feel like back in 2019? And then what's it like seeing that there's a through line and the thing continues to grow and change over time? Yeah, there's definitely been quite a few changes, even from the aspect from individual to group work, seeing how students now have the opportunity to engage in they're able to work on PSAs in different manners. So students have the opportunity to work on it in groups. And they also have the opportunity to work on, if they're interested in different PSAs, they can also work on a different PSA. So there's a lot more flexibility there. I do definitely envy the students now that they have the opportunity to, you know, work with more team members and have like multiple mindsets together. But I think that's also, perhaps that's the reason why they find this experience even more so enjoyable now that, you know, the burden is shared upon all and they're able to work together to make something that they're really proud of. That's something that I would have loved in first year, but now seeing that, you know, this current students get to do it, I'll live vicariously through them. Yeah. As someone who's lived many years, you get used to that feeling where you're like, wow, it's pretty cool now. But then you basically wind up rooting for progress. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of these cases, Steve, we're getting close to time. Real quick question. What about social loafing? Group projects, how do you account for that? One of the best things to do is anytime you have students work in teams, you follow that with something called a peer evaluation, which is a little different than a peer assessment. A peer evaluation is every member of the team 
one by one says, here's what these other teammates did, and maybe even explicitly lists what they've contributed. And so that when students know that's coming, Mm. then they're less likely to socially loaf. We did, as part of our research project, invite students. We said, if you had issues with your group, reach out to Steve and I'll go through these peer evaluations and figure out what was going on. And we had 36 out of 450 groups uh, Mm -hmm. with issues, which is pretty good odds. As far as I know, I I haven't seen anybody just sort of list what the norm is, but that feels pretty good to me. You know, very little in in terms of revolt. And in fact, in some ways, Lalani and I joke when we say, if we want to really sum up the research, we can talk about, hey, students seem to really like this, really like that. But the real punchline is there was no revolt. We got them working in teams at scale, doing experiential learning, and they embraced it. And so the fact that you can do that in a large first-year class like ours means we could do it in any class. And that's really the main issue that we want to highlight. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was going next. Where could this go? Like It does seem like within higher ed, it's a pretty scalable model. And then I always think about the adjacency on the professional side, you know, we all have to continue to learn throughout our lives. You know, it does seem Mm -hmm. like you're designing delivery formats that actually are a little more bottom up, peer to peer and scalable. Any thoughts on where this could go? You know, as someone who's getting to the end of their undergrad, (laughs) and you start thinking ahead of careers, and I speak as a student in the sense that there's this thing of, okay, I've learned this much but can I apply it? Do I know how to apply it? Do I know how to use it? And definitely projects like this, like authentic learning experiences like this, it allows you to, it gives you that confidence for you to know, like I am able, I am worth my degree. (laughs) I am capable of making use of the knowledge that I've learned. I've created an impact previously while in my undergrad and I could continue doing that in the workplace. So in, in that sense, it's definitely something that incorporating it into classes, I could see it having not only effects in terms of the students performing well on the assignment, like that temporary effect, but also long-term in building confidence, feeling, you know, like you have power over what you create. Like these are all things that are going to benefit them for the long run. That all sounds great to me. (laughs) So so I would just, you know, add to that, that the skills we're talking about, these C's, whatever you want to talk about them, problem solving skills, communication skills, personal growth skills. Those are the ones I kind of think about. Chat GPT, right? We live in this chat GPT shadow all the time. Those are the skills that we always said would be critical, but more so now. So even exactly within work environments, I think these are the skills that are going to be really valuable. And there's absolutely, we can bring this stuff into professional development and work on communication, socio-emotional communication skills. That's where innovation comes from. If you have a team that can communicate really openly with one another, that's how innovation arises. That's how business success arises. So absolutely, it's preparing students for that world but it needn't stop at that point. It can continue certainly beyond. Makes sense. It reminds me also of the importance of being able to take that feedback. And that's the hard part. That is. I remember one of the best professional trainings that I had in my career reminds me of what you're describing. And, you know, you went through those peer evaluation, peer feedback sessions at the end, and all you could say was thank you. That was all you could say. And I still, to this day, remember that. Feedback of any type is a gift. And there's a tendency to want to get defensive, litigate, get into more more than It's more than a tendency, I'll say. It's a primitive instinct. It's our fight-flight reflex. And it's been there since caveman days. Every bit of feedback has a hint of threat involved. There's something, a weakness of yours being exposed. And the natural reaction is to want to fight or flight. You have to learn to overcome that. The thank you 
is the state after you've got the skill, <laughs> but you got to get to the thank you. And it's a hard, it's a hard place to get, but that's what all this experience is for is to teach them exactly that. Yeah. And you got to get those reps in and that's why doing this at scale really can move the needle. Wonderful conversation with Lilati Thangavadivalu and Steve Jordans. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having us. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. We'll include links to what Steve was talking about in the show notes. This is Trending in Education. Subscribe, tell your friends, write reviews, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. Thank you for listening.